are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. This letter, it'll be on the screen for you, is he's writing to give believers hope, encouragement, and confidence as they live and suffer in a world that's not their home. He's writing to give believers hope, encouragement, and confidence as they live and suffer, live and suffer in a world that is not their home. Before we dive into uh, verses 3 through 5 this week, I want to pray for us, pray for our time in God's Word this morning, that the Holy Spirit will just stir us up, cause us to, uh, to bless the Lord. All right, so let's pray together. Let's pray together. Father, I do... If we, if we just sat and reflected on your goodness to us, we would be here for thousands of years. For each one of us has 10,000 plus reasons to bless the Lord. And I am so grateful for your kindness and your mercy to us. And I just pray, Father, that this morning in the hearing of your word, that you just give us the grace through the Spirit just to remember, just to take a minute and just remember how merciful you have been to us. We get so caught up in the day-to-day and forget, we just forget to stop and pause and meditate on your goodness and your kindness and your mercy. So let us do that now by your grace as we look at your word and stir us up to praise, stir us up to worship that has its roots in who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. We love you and pray these things in Christ's name, amen. We praise that which we love, right? And we praise most the things that we love most. Uh, when our hearts are captivated by something or by someone, praise, adoration, adulation is the response. We talk about it, we praise, we worship. I think about my wife, Christine, uh, you know, 13 years ago, we stood at an altar and said, I do. She's, by God's grace, for some reason said, I do as well. I'm thankful for that. Um, But we were obviously there because we loved each other, right? I mean, we're not getting married. We don't love each other. Love preceded our decision to get married. But over the the course of the last 13 years, as I've begun to uncover more and more of who she is as a person, as I've seen her develop into a wife and into a mother these last few years, as I've seen her mature into a believer, uh, into a more mature believer, as I've... Uh, seen her thrive in her field of, of counseling and use her gifts to really be patient and love people and meet them in their moment of weakness and need. And I've learned so much from that as I've seen all these things. And as my knowledge of her has continued to grow, it's not hard for me to praise her to other people. It's not hard for me to build her up, to compliment her, to show my affection for her because we praise those things or people we love the most. Praise is the fruit of devotion. Praise is the response of love. To claim that we truly love something or someone and not be affected or moved or stirred up by that person or thing is not the fullness of love. For adoration is the culmination of love and devotion. You know, Peter begins the body of his epistle in verse 3 with praise. He starts with worship. He says, in fact, the worship of God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right there in verse 3, that this phrase, verse 3, actually frames up the next nine verses. Verses 4 through 12. 
It's like verse 3 is a mighty oak tree, and verses 4 through 12 are the roots supporting that massive oak tree. That verse 3 is the fruit of the roots of verses 4 through 12. It's worship, it's praise. And the way verses 3 through 12 are framed up teach us that our doxology is always an overflow of our theology. That our doxology, our worship, worshiping God, is always an overflow of our theology, of our knowledge of who God is. My praise of Christine as my wife is an overflow of my knowledge of her as a person. And the more I know her, the deeper the roots grow, and the greater the affection as the result is the greater affection is the result of praise. Peter begins his epistle with worship, and for the next eight verses in chapter one, he tells you the reasons why he cannot help but worship God. And why are we here, church? Why are you here this morning? Why is it that every single week we come into this room, choose to gather as a body at 10:30 on Sunday mornings? What is your disposition when you walk through those doors on a Sunday morning? Are you glad to be here? Are you happy to be here? Are you eager to pour out your worship to God? Is, is what we do here at 1030 an overflow of what God's been doing throughout the week? You know, when we hear the prayers, when we sing the songs, when we open the word, are your hearts affected by that? Are they stirred up in praise to God because of that? Are our hearts cold? Are our affections subdued? When, when Cody gets up to lead, do you find yourself truly captivated by the wonder and the awe of, of who God is as we recount what he has done for us in Christ? Or is your worship mechanical? Is it lifeless? Is it forced? Is it always lifeless or is this just a season for you? Is it a season filled with stresses and anxieties that have robbed you of joy? You know, when the word is open week after week and the character of God is held up for us to behold and gaze upon, is your heart yearning to know more and more about this God who has saved you? If Jesus brings life, if he is the life giver, the source of our life, do you have life? When you sing these songs, do you sing in a way that's believable? Like if somebody were to walk in through these doors that's a guest with us and never been here before, would he look around or she look around and actually see people singing songs they believe? Would they see people singing songs rooted in life they have? Or is our worship lifeless? Do our affections for Christ lead us to praise? They lead Peter to praise. And I pray they lead us to praise too. And there are two primary reasons this morning for Peter's doxology, for his worship. And they're found in verses 3 through 5. So let's look at this text. Let's see these two primary reasons Peter worships God. First, Peter worships and we worship God as, as well, for he is rich in mercy. Our God is rich in mercy. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. So let's stop there for just a second. The place Peter begins his adoration of God, the first root we hit, digging up underneath this oak tree, is God's mercy. 
Peter reminds his readers for the second time here that in three verses that God is the Father of Jesus Christ, that His identity is Father, that His mercy towards us is rooted in His fatherly affection towards Jesus, that He is our Father, that when He sent His Son to this earth, this was one of the primary ways He chose to reveal Himself was as Father to us. And the disposition of the heart of the Father is towards mercy. It's not like God's scraping the bottom of the mercy barrel, just trying to find something within himself to give to us of mercy, but his heart of the Father, the heart of the Father is rich in mercy. It's great in mercy. It's mercy that's intrinsic to his character. You know, the Greek word for mercy here is the word elios, and The word elios, uh, when they were translating the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek translation of the Old Testament back 300 years before Christ came, they translated the Hebrew word chesed, which is a fun word to use. It's this word talking about God's covenant love for his people. In your Bibles, it may say, anytime you see the word steadfast love, that's probably the word chesed there. But they translate that word in in the Greek Old Testament into elios, elios. So, for example, let me give you an example. So, Exodus 34, 6, famous verse. Uh, the context of Exodus 34, 6, Moses is on the mountain receiving the law from the Lord. In Exodus 32, the people create a golden calf. All right, we know this story. They make this golden calf, start worshiping this calf that they literally just made and are now bowing down to it. And God says, uh, hey, I'm going to kill them all, Moses, and I'm going to start over with you. All right? Um, justifiably so. Um, I mean, they've been out of Egypt for like a week, all right? They've already forgotten. Um, and, but Moses intercedes for the people. He pleads for them, for God to have mercy upon them, and God relents of his anger. It's a truly amazing scene in the Scriptures. And Moses, probably feeling pretty good about himself at that point, Exodus 32 and 33, he then requests to see God's glory. He says, show me your glory. And God says, well, I I mean, you can't look at me, I'm holy, you can't look at me and live. No man can look at me and live because of his sin. But what I can do is I'm going to hide you in this cave in the rock, and I'm going to pass by you. You'll be able to see the back of my glory. And so he hides Moses in this rock, and he passes by, and as God is passing by, Moses gazes upon the back of the glory of the Lord, and God is revealing to him his character as he's seeing his glory, because God's character and his glory and his name go hand in hand together. And what he says is this in Exodus 34, 6. God says says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Mercy, elios in the Greek translation of that verse. Mercy to define chesed, this covenant love. And this love, this chesed love, was a word in the Old Testament used to describe the steadfast covenant love of God. His love that never changes towards his people. His love that always remains on his people through his commitment to them and their commitment to him. It's a steadfast, merciful love that's rooted in God's faithfulness towards his people. It's a word used to describe God's gracious actions as being rooted in his gracious character towards his people. This richness of God's mercy that he possesses is rooted in his covenant love towards us, his mercy towards us. And Peter can't help but worship for his great mercy. Well, how? How is God rich in mercy? Well, Peter tells us, further undergirding his praise for God's mercy. He says, first, by God's initiative, he makes us new. 
By God's initiative, he makes us new. Let's keep reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He, God, the agent, has caused us, he caused us to be born again. New life for those that are in Christ Jesus. You know, we talked last week in week one about God's election of his people. We're not going to hash, rehash that out. If you missed it, have any questions about it, let's talk about it. Go back and listen to it. But it comes out here again. Peter is emphasizing once again that at the heart of salvation is God's initiative. That God doesn't do anything arbitrarily, but God does everything on purpose and by design. And this is truly at the heart of what it means to be merciful. All right? I mean, think of, let's think about this for just a second. True mercy is demonstrated when the recipient of mercy has no other options but the disposition of the one giving mercy. Right? There's nothing else on the table. We've exhausted all of our options. What we need in this moment is mercy. That's what we need. Let's think about uh, in a courtroom. Let's think about a courtroom for a second. Judge. Some of you guys are lawyers. I've never been in a courtroom. I pray I'd never go to a courtroom. Actually, I have to adopt Riley, but that was a pleasant experience. Um, but let's think about this. If someone accused of a crime is guilty, if they are dead to rights, if they are convicted of a crime, they have, and they have no case at all to appeal to get them out of this predicament, then that guilty person has nothing to fall upon but the mercy of the judge. Right? All other options are exhausted. That's why when you have sentencing hearings, like there's oftentimes appeals for leniency from the judge in the sentencing because the judge is the one that has the final say in sentencing. Because there's nothing left in that moment for salvation and hope than the judge's mercy. Nothing. In the most desperate hour, the judge has to take the initiative to act before any mercy can be found. That's what's happening here. We in our sin, are dead to rights. Literally, there is no case for us to make before the judge, the Lord, that can get us out from the wrath that he's about to pour out on us. No amount of good character, no amount of good deeds, no amount of money to be paid to get us out of this predicament, no amount of work could be performed. There is nothing. We have nothing to fall upon except the mercy of God. Nothing. Well, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he possesses great mercy. And when we could do nothing, he took the initiative. He did. And he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus took on the Father's wrath to receive, so that we could receive the Father's mercy. And now our Father is rich. In mercy, He always has been rich in mercy. Justice still had to be served. Jesus took the justice of God that we might receive the mercy of God. Pardon for our crimes. Pardon for our sins. Fully. Full atonement has been made. And we are born again. Reborn. Like new people. Because of God's great mercy. Now, this language uh, reminds us of, of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's having this, Nicodemus comes in the, you know, the still of night, the darkness of night, to talk to Jesus. And Jesus tells him that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. 
And he says, you must be born by water and the Spirit, Jesus says. Kind of this biblical picture of cleansing of sin and being filled with new life, being filled with the Spirit of life. This is why I asked earlier if you're alive. If you're alive, if there's any life in you. Jesus came that we may have life and have it to the full. Are you alive? Are we alive? When we're born again, we are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And as new creations, as new beings, so to speak, we have new desires, new affections, new hearts. Our hearts are stirred up by different things now. We want the Lord. We want to see His glory. We want to see His presence manifest itself here among us and in our community and in our world. We want to be affected by Him. And the question is, are we truly alive? Honestly, are you alive? Is there life in you? You know, a lot of times we're so busy, we forget to take a self-assessment of where we are. Pause for a minute. Are you alive? Be honest with yourself. Are you alive? Do you have affections for Christ? Do you want Him? Do you desire to know Him? Do thoughts of God's mercy towards you in Christ stir up your heart? Is there any life in you? When you reflect on the depths to which God went to save you, to pull you up from the pit of death, to take your lifeless spiritual corpse and fill it with His Spirit according to His great mercy, do these thoughts stir up something in you? Do you feel anything? Is there anything happening in you when you think about those things? Life should mark the people of God. Life. Do you have life? Have you been born again? Have you? Second, God has also been rich in mercy towards us for through the resurrection we possess a living hope. Through the resurrection, we possess a living hope. Verse 3, again. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we are born again to receive something. Actually receive some things, plural, which we're going to get to in a second. And the first thing we are born again to receive is a living hope. Now, there are very few things more powerful in this world than hope. When you lose hope, you lose desire to live. <clears throat> One of my top five movies of all time, Shawshank Redemption, all right? Top five. If you haven't seen it, man, shame on you. But Andy Dufresne, the main protagonist in the movie, he'd been wrongly convicted of a crime that he did not commit. He spent a couple of decades in Shawshank Prison, Shawshank Redemption. And spoiler alert, he escapes, all right? I feel, do not feel bad for you. It's been out for like 25 years. He escapes prison, all right? He escapes. And his best friend, Red, played by Morgan Freeman, he gets released on parole a few years after Andy escapes. And Red receives a letter from Andy at the end of the movie. And, and Andy, just remember, Andy has spent several decades in jail for a crime he never committed, seeking to have himself acquitted multiple times and unjustly was turned down throughout the movie. But he writes in this letter, he says this, he says, remember that hope is a good thing, Red, maybe the best of things. 
and no good thing ever dies. There's nothing like the power of hope. You know, study after study has been done on the psychological power of hope, that those who have hope recover and heal faster from health diagnoses, that those with hope tend to perform better in athletic endeavors. I hope that I can beat this team. I mean, uh, think about like ninth inning rallies or comebacks in sports. You know, there's team, let's think of basketball as what I played. So think about basketball for a second. This late game, like scoring run, people are going on and, you know, there's hope, there's momentum building. And then what happens when the other team hits a big three or something? The line, the announcer says, oh, and that's a dagger because they've just stabbed your hope, right? Your hope is now bleeding out because that guy hit that shot. You've got no hope left. It's a dagger. It's killed you. You're done. Hope's powerful, and there's nothing more devastating than hopelessness. I mean, depression, anxiety, suicide, all these things can find their roots in hopelessness and despair. But what is hope? You know, when we say we're hoping for something, what are we talking about? Hope is the firm conviction that something will happen in the future. But for that kind of hope to even exist, there must be some kind of concrete basis in the past for that hope. Let me give you an example. I hope the sun will rise tomorrow. Why? Because every day since the beginning of time, the sun has risen. And so my, I have hope that it will rise tomorrow. Apart from Jesus coming back, it's going to rise tomorrow. My present hope that the sun will rise is rooted in a past pattern of actions past events that have taken place that ground my present and my future hope. I hope in the present for something to happen in the future that's rooted in the past. Right? I hope in the present for something to happen in the future that's rooted in the past. And Peter's writing to these Christians in the first century here, these believers who many of them more than likely had been exiled, literally exiled from their homes in Rome during persecution times, and they're living in places not familiar to them, battling hopelessness and despair, probably wondering if God had forgotten them, if, he plans, if his plans for them were still for their good, if they're still his sons and daughters and he's still their loving father, probably have all these questions running through their minds because the situation they currently found themselves in only sowed seeds of doubt and despair. And Peter's writing, he's saying, have hope. Have hope. You possess a living hope, one that does not die. For your present and future hope are rooted in the past actions of God towards you. Remember how he has always shown himself faithful to you. Always, throughout your life. Ultimately, look back to the past. A concrete, real, historical event called the cross and the resurrection that happened. The reason for your hope is, the reason your hope is living is because the basis of your hope is living. In fact, Satan tried to kill the basis of your hope, but even death could not stop the basis of your hope. For he walked out of a grave never to die again. Therefore, your hope is a living hope because the basis of your hope, Jesus Christ, is a living being. He's never going to die again. Therefore, your hope will never die. So hold on. So hold on. Just a little while longer. And your hope will be justified. The strength of hope is directly tied to the reliability and promise of the basis of one's hope. 
can the basis of your hope, Christian, can the basis of your hope be trusted to follow through on what he, or he promises He will do? The answer in Christ is a resounding yes. Yes. You know, many of us in this room, we have been in moments where our lives have felt very hopeless. Not seeing how whatever situation we find ourselves in will ever come to an end. We're just getting beat down left and right and left and right. We see no end in sight. I mean, maybe you're there now. Maybe that's where you're at right now. Don't despair. The foundation of your hope has been secured in the past. It's sufficient for the present. And it guarantees your future. So as the old hymn says, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth past. Thine own dear presence to steer and cheer and to guide, present. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, future. Blessings all mine with 10,000 aside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, your hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord, unto me. Past, present, and future hope found in Jesus Christ. So just hold on. Cling to that hope, for God is holding you with the strength you need to hold on to Him. But not only do we receive a living hope by the mercy of God, but we also, in our new birth, receive an eternal inheritance. Verse 4. We've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Again, think about the situation these men and women here find themselves in. Peter's writing to them. More than likely lost everything physically they owned in this world. Right? Exiles. They've lost it all. They don't know when they're ever going to go back home. <clears throat> in a culture that valued passing down a name, passing down possessions and inheritance to the generations to come. These people had literally nothing of physical worldly value to hand down to their children and grandchildren. Nothing. It was gone. And think about, as well, Peter's desires we talked about last week. Peter wants to draw continuity here between God's people in the Old Testament and the people in the New Testament. This idea of an inheritance is rooted in this Jewish understanding of promise and blessing from God. Right? All throughout the Old Testament, the people are either looking forward to their inheritance, the promised land, they're living within their inheritance, the promised land, or they're looking back at how they squandered their inheritance, the promised land. And Peter says, hey, all of the inheritance you've lost or squandered are merely shadows of an inheritance to come because of Christ. That the inheritance we now possess because of Jesus cannot be taken away. It cannot spoil, it cannot be defiled, it cannot rot, cannot be stolen, it cannot be lost, but it's not even here. It's kept in heaven for us. He is guarding our inheritance. Nothing can take it away. You know, to be able to lay claim on an inheritance means that we've been, already been brought into a family, right? That our names are in the will, so to speak. That it's already been signed, notarized, and finalized. Processed, it's done. According to his great mercy, God in his kindness gives us new birth. And our new birth as sons and daughters 
secures for us a coming inheritance, a coming possession that can never be taken away. You may lose all things in this world, Christian. You may lose every single thing for the sake of following Jesus, but you will never lose Christ. You may lose promotions. You may lose worldly possessions. Your kids may lose travel baseball teams, travel soccer teams, whatever the case may be, but you will never lose Christ. You have a greater inheritance coming, and his name is Jesus Christ. We don't have a dead faith. We have a living hope. But even the best things in this life are faint echoes of something to come that we cannot even begin to fathom or imagine. Leave behind what matters. Leave behind a spiritual inheritance to your families. So the first primary reason Peter begins his epistle in praise is that God is rich in mercy. Second, he grounds his worship in a God whose power to save us. Second, sorry, that was second. He grounds his worship in a God who has the power to save us. We worship God for his power to save us. Verse 5. We, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, it would be one thing for God to only possess the mercy to save us. Mercy's great, but the disposition to save without the ability to save is nothing more than pity. Right? So what is needed is not only the willingness, the mercy to save, but the power needed to do it. And God is not only merciful, but he is powerful enough to accomplish all which he desires. He guards us through faith. As we place our hope and trust in God, we experience his power to protect us until the end, even in the midst of exile. We are sustained in our time of trial and suffering through faith in a God who has the ability to carry us to the end that he gives us the faith we need to have faith in him. And he will carry us to the end. He will keep us and guard us from any evil that seeks to tear us away and leave us hopeless. And here's an interesting phrase. He guards us for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, oftentimes you think about salvation, you think about a past event, right? And we should. We should. I mean, our salvation is rooted in a past historical event, namely the death and resurrection of Christ, we just talked about a second ago. But salvation in the scriptures is this already not yet experience. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will finally fully be saved. What I mean by that is this. In the past, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. In the past, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. There was an objective, concrete event that took place on Calvary that saved us from the wrath of God. We have talked about this again already, but when Christ hung on the cross, he bore in his body the penalty his people deserve because of their sin, namely the penalty of separation and death from God as our wages of sin, rebellion, treason against him. That's what we deserved. But Jesus Christ bore our penalty, our wrath, on the cross as a substitute for us, and his sacrifice was justified and proven to be acceptable through his resurrection from the dead, that's been done. Atonement has been made at the cross. 
And the result is we have been saved from the penalty before our judge. We have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. Second, scriptures also talk about a salvation that's presently taking place. So that in the present, we are being saved from the power of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin. It's what the Spirit is currently doing in us who are in Christ. He is giving us a distaste for the things that break God's heart. And a holy taste, holy appetites for the things that bring him joy. And as these new tastes and desires, as they develop, the power of sin over us becomes less and less because our delights and our appetites and our tastes are becoming more and more rooted in God. And then third, and this is what the text is mentioning here, in the future we will finally be saved from the presence of sin. We'll be saved from the presence of sin. It's coming a day when Jesus returns and makes himself known to this broken, fallen humanity. That sin will be a distant memory. It'll never be known again. The brokenness of hopelessness and exile and loss will will be replaced. Even hope, hope which implies that we are still waiting for something, will be gone. No need to hope anymore. All of our hopes have been fulfilled. In Christ. For the culmination of all our hoping, the return and reign of Christ has been done. We long for that day. And while we wait for that day, while we wait for that day, we bless the Lord. We praise the Lord. We worship the Lord. We meditate on his great character and his great acts, and it causes us to worship, for he is rich in mercy and strong in power. He will deliver and be faithful to his people. So I want to do something now that's a little different. I don't think we respond enough as a body to one another, to stir one another up. And if our goal is worship and stirring up and praise in this church, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I want to take the next few minutes. And if you have seen over the last couple of weeks... Places where you have seen God's mercy, his faithfulness towards you. I want you to share that. I want you to tell us about that because we need to stir one another up. Every single person, if it's true that each person in this room has 10,000 reasons to bless the Lord, give us one. Give us one. I'm going to sit, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to bring the mic to you. Make it awkward. That's fine. I don't care. I'm okay with silence. If it's silent for a couple minutes, we'll sing. But every person in this room has a story of God's kindness to you over the last couple of weeks, and we want to worship him. So anybody in the room have anything you want to share? Doesn't have to be long. A couple sentences. reminded this week of um, my um, our call as believers just to 
lay our burdens down at God's feet in prayer and just bring everything to him in prayer. And it was such a good reminder that I've forgotten. Hmm. Thank you. Anyone else? DJ. No, go for it, man. Um, I am. I'm so thankful for God's faithfulness. That's the main thing. God does everything for us. <laughs> and we don't even have to try. Right? That's the best part about it. Is uh we really don't have to <laughs> we really don't have to try. Yeah, it's tiring sometimes. Like I feel it. You know, this morning, I think I'm with y'all. Sometimes it's like, I think I have too much energy in this, in this place, and I feel like I just have to chill. But today, it's like, dang. The only thing I told Angel, I was like, man, I was like, can't wait to go to church, and I hope the music is good. <laughs> and the music was good today. Thank you, Cody. <laughs> yeah, and so, man, the Lord hangs on to you. Like that already not yet thing that you said. It's like, it's mostly not yet, y'all. It's mostly not yet. Right? That's what you're going to feel most of the time. But every once in a while, you taste the already. Heaven and earth come together, and you feel heaven. And that's, what's, that's where it's at. That's where you get hope. Um, I see that all over my life, with my marriage. You know, taste of hope keeps you going. Being a parent, you know, I suck at it, but <laughs> man, you have hope. You have hope, like, seriously. And the community is a part of it. This is a part of it. Um, man, I've been here in Birmingham for almost 10 years. I've been thinking about that lately. It's like, dang, it's like, seriously, like, chance. Like, I love chance. Like, Cody, saw Dave in the back, Buster, like, all these people have given me rides. Like, took care of me, like, when I was, like, a kid. I still feel like a kid most of the time, but I feel like I'm finally, like, growing up a little bit. You know what I mean? And so, that's what it's all about, is just, you don't even have to try. Just know that Jesus has you. He'll take care of you. He'll take care of you. those of you that don't know me uh, I struggle with really bad depression a lot and um, this week I had some really happy moments and I laughed a lot and it's been a while since that happened so I'm just grateful to God for that I was just gonna say for those that have been kind of following the Campbells um, just the way that kind of the last week has played out and just been able to see the Lord's kindness um, Gibson and their family and um, I think we all can breathe a little bit more um, and then the hope that comes from that that um, he doesn't have a cancerous tumor and just the way the Campbells have really just uh, shown Christ even through this really tough couple of weeks Maybe that's one more, one more, anybody else?
just know really since I've been here, um, God has just continually showed his mercy and kindness through my DNA group. This DNA group has been through the highs of highs and the lows of lows with me, but they have tunically showed me through Christ in all of those moments, and I'm very, very thankful for that. great reasons to worship, great reasons to have hope in a God who is faithful to us in so many ways. So my prayer for us is that we remember, remember in the present what's been done in the past to give us hope for the future. Christianity is a lot of remembering. It's primarily remembering. Remembering Christ who loves you, cares for you. Whatever moment you find yourself in, if it is a moment of great despair, if it's a moment of just apathy, if it's a moment of struggle right now, those moments will come to an end. They will. You have a living hope in Jesus Christ.